Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 120 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 120, 120, we are going to get to answer a fan mail or email from a show listener, which is always fun. So that's going to be the first thing we talk about on the show. We're also going to have a little bit of a CBQZ tech update in terms of how things are looking therein. Um, not really anything shocking or new there, but uh, just sort of a general status update. We're going to talk a little bit about PNW specific status updates because we are less than a week away from the very first meet of the year. So, so I want to talk a little bit about that. But then we're going to spend the bulk of the show talking about how quizzing is kind of facing and not actually kind of, it's for realsies, facing a, a bit of an existential crisis. Uh, you know, various programs have been declining over the past several decades, certainly the last 20 years. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, what the COVID stuff did to us. And that's not really, it's not really COVID's fault. It just sort of um, accelerated that which had already been going on for, you know, the past 20 plus years or something like that. So we're going to be talking about that, which is not to say that we're going to be particularly bleak because we have some ideas that we've been floating around for quite some time, several months around how to make a directional change in terms of uh, fixing quizzing from, you know, continuous to uh, slow decline year over year to something that grows year over year. But it's going to take uh, a fairly significant set of changes, and we are not daunted by them. And we're going to kind of talk through what those might look like and all sorts of other sort of uh, connected kind of tissues around that. So without all that said, let's jump into our first topic. This is an email that comes to us from Josiah. And by the way, if anybody wants to email us, we would love to have feedback from you. Uh, so we would definitely like to hear from you if you have any disagreements, but even, you know, comments or questions or anything like that, uh, please toss in, uh, toss us an email. You can reach us at iq at cbqz.org, or if you are in Canada, iq at cbqz.org. And uh, for the this first one that comes from Josiah, he used the U.S. version of the email, and he uh, writes as follows. I have an idea that I believe would be a good discussion for your Bible quizzing podcast. Some districts have a juniors program that includes people from second grade to sixth grade, uh, i.e. those who are not able to attend internationals. Uh, some districts have one and some districts don't. And I want to know the benefits and detriments of having a juniors program. So we've talked about a juniors program, although I don't know, I don't know if we've actually called it that, but we've talked about similar concepts on the podcast in years past, but let's uh, revisit this issue. And Scott, what are your thoughts about this? I feel like we've largely talked about a juniors division among sixth to 12th graders and not a younger than sixth graders um, side of things. I think you are. Yes, you are really, you are very correct. And that's actually very interesting. We should talk about both things and clarify the differences. So, I mean, name you can name things whatever you want, but I think we've we've often talked about divisions, right? Um, I think CMD might call them A, B, and C, um, but you could call them a senior division and a junior division, or an experience division and a rookie division. However, you want to name them and divide things up. But I think the motivation for those among quizzers' age uh, grades six through twelve is to let people self-select into a competitive level that they want. Um, so that you don't have an inexperienced rookie just get cleaned out by your um, sixth 
um, sixth year internationals veteran. Um, I think we're in favor of that if you have the infrastructure for it. If your district has 40 quizzers and 11 would be in the junior division, it kind of makes it really hard to run a meet um, for just them. So I think logistics drive a lot of that there. I think PNW would have loved to do divisions, but just didn't have the size of a district like Canadian Midwest. And then there's juniors, which is younger than sixth grade. Um, and I don't know. I always just I think of these things as where do you want to put your resources? Um, so one like one example of that would be we would love to have a you know second grade through fifth grade level of quizzing, but that requires um, more infrastructure around officials and room at a quiz meet. And it may make it it may cause the number of possible quizzes for your sixth through twelfth graders to be reduced. You may want that. You may not want that. Uh, i I often look at things from a competitive lens, and I would say the type of quizzer who is second through fifth grade that would want to participate is probably more often than not the type of quizzer that you don't have to do you will not have to do a lot of work. Um, getting them accustomed to quizzing once they are a sixth grader. So I don't know, like from a competitive standpoint, how much you gain by a quizzer participating in quizzing starting earlier. So I've always been interested in trying to expand the age range that we uh, deploy quizzing to, trying to go to younger ages, younger than, say, sixth grade or seventh grade. And then it's also expanding uh, into older age ranges as well. So in PNW, we, um, you know, we haven't been doing this the last couple of years, but prior we had instituted and been operating kind of a quasi adult league, uh, quizzing. It wasn't really an, an actual division or anything. It was really more just like occasionally doing adult, uh, uh, aged quizzing, just kind of like exhibitions, uh, from here and there. We were keeping score and keeping track and that kind of stuff, but it was really more just like an occasional quiz here and there, not actually a meet, uh, because we didn't want to detract too much from the uh, from the main focus of, of quizzing the, the the youth in age eligibility. But I've always been very fascinated by the idea of, of expanding quizzing to as many people as possible. So I kind of like the idea of having a juniors program that kind of moves down, perhaps down into second grade. But again, it's it's just like what you were talking about, Scott. It, it's the how do you have the logistics to be able to handle that? Do you have the staff to be able to handle that? Um, I certainly think it's a great idea if you can go in that direction, but depending upon the nature of how you structure your, your quiz meets, it may actually be ROI negative to actually have a separate division. It, but again, it, it just kind of depends. So this uh, season, uh, P and W, our meets are all going to be Saturday only. They're going to start very early on Saturday and run, you know, up until dinner, give or take a little bit, uh, on Saturday. But we're just going to have single day meets with the exception of, uh, district championships. Well, I mean, of course, Great West as well. Great West is going to be multi-day. Um, but in terms of actual, say, regular season and preseason PNW meets, they're going to be Saturday only. Uh, and we're doing that this year for predominantly logistical reasons to be, uh, you know, to make it a little bit easier on host facilities and so forth. And just based on the demographic and uh, not demographic, but geographic distribution uh, of folks, it tends to work out a little bit better for us this time around. So the difference between, say, having a, a program that's, say, sixth grade through 12th grade versus one that's second grade through 12th grade isn't that different 
Um, but that said, imagine quizzing of like 20 years ago, 20 years ago, PW quizzing, we would have Friday and Saturday meets and Friday nights, uh, teams would go off to host families. Uh, if you've got somebody who's in second or third grade, maybe that's not such an ideal situation to be in, uh, off on some, you know, host family home. I'm sure it would be fine, but it's a little bit weird. Now, there are some who make the argument and I, and I, I hear the argument that, there is such an age differential, a maturity differential between, say, grade four and grade eight, that it's probably better to actually segregate those two age groups to some degree. And I can see that argument, generally speaking, except that if somebody's going to actually be, you know, if somebody's actually going to be, let's say, in fourth grade and studying equivalent enough that they can actually participate in a 6th through 12th grade uh, quizzing environment, I, I think it's really just a question of whether the person is mature enough to be able to participate in terms of, of sportsmanship, professionalism, that kind of thing. And if they are, I don't see any reason. In fact, I see many reasons not to segregate them into a, a you know, a different class of quizzer. If they're not mature enough, I'm I'm struggling to see an environment where, let's say you've got um, a bunch of fourth graders, and I just picked that because it's somewhere between second and sixth grade, but let's say you've got a bunch of fourth graders who are all attempting to memorize some verses, but don't have the level of maturity and professionalism to place them in the sixth through twelfth grade you know, program, would you be able to actually run a quizzing program in that environment? I, I'm not so sure. Like, you'd certainly need a whole lot more adult leadership involvement there. Uh, one of the things that's kind of nice about the 6th through 12th grade program, and I don't want to necessarily use those as as strict confines to the age limits there, but if you're talking about a 6th through 12th grade program, one of the nice things is by and large, you don't really need to have a lot of, you know, say, parental oversight or coach oversight. Uh, it's good to have coaches to kind of shepherd teams around from room to room and, and to keep score and to help coach and motivate and that kind of stuff. But generally speaking, kids in that age range are pretty mature, pretty self-reliant, self-capable. They're professional. They're, they're, you know, they have good sportsmanship by and large, right? There's exceptions. Um, so, Bottom line, is it a good idea? I don't know. I don't, it feels to me like the ROI would be negative net net. I don't know. Scott, what are your thoughts on this stuff? I don't think I would say that second or quizzers, having quizzers younger than sixth grade participate would be ROI net negative. Um, but I am reminded of a productivity hack ploy system um, that I think could be useful, which I, I think it came, originated with Warren Buffett. And the idea is you make a list of your 25 top priorities and you order them one to 25. And then priorities one through five are your focus. And priorities six through 25 are things that you absolutely do not do anything on. And the idea is that your focus can be stolen by things that have a level of importance or value, um, but less so than your top priority things. And the numbers 25 and 5 are completely arbitrary, right? Um, but in the world of quizzing, it could be that you should list seven priorities and priorities four through seven should be the things that you absolutely don't do. And it could be that this level of junior quizzing would fall into that bucket, you know, for whatever reason. It could be different for every district. Um, but, I, you know, something just being net positive 
doesn't necessarily mean you should spend time on it. Um, although I guess you could argue Griffin that you can make that net positive or negative calculation in terms of its effect on everything else. Right. And so if something, if something is net positive, then you just do it. I think it really comes down to the district size or the cumulative size between the programs. So like if you could put together a group of say, you know, second to sixth graders that were, you know, a hundred plus in size and you were able to have a correspondingly appropriate number of parents and coaches being involved there. I think the ratio of quizzer to parent would have to be necessarily higher on average uh, between, you know, a second to sixth grade versus a sixth sixth grade to 12th grade. But assuming you had the resources to put that together, it's entirely possible that that actually could be a separate program that has net ROI missional value. I think it just comes down to kind of the same sort of issues that we had before of um, what's the best way to, given the limited resources that you have to advance the mission. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I have anything else to add. I think I guess from where I'm from from my perspective, I would start by saying, you know, are do you have people who are between second and sixth grade who are interested in quizzing in your area? And if you do, are they mature enough to quiz in your current program? Like like mature enough, professional enough, capable enough. I think those are the three sort of uh, litmus tests that that I'd be looking for. And if so, I would challenge the idea that that you have to prevent them from quizzing with you because they're not in sixth grade yet. Um, I mean, you can certainly have any, you know, do whatever you want at the district level. They may not be eligible to attend internationals, but they can certainly participate in your local district. Um, if they're not mature enough, uh, capable enough, professional enough, then, you know, maybe you want to consider a juniors program, but then you're talking about like having to more than double your volunteer staff, um, probably triple your volunteer staff, which may be possible if you've got a big enough group to be able to do it in. And certainly if you can pull that off, uh, it would be a great feeder to the senior program, I guess. Yeah. And I think... We're being a little bit vague, potentially on purpose, when talking around about maturity level. But I'm, I'm just thinking to times that I've been a quiz master. And in general, I don't have to deal with anything related to behavior. Um, and I think the potential range of having to deal with behavior just um, expands once you um, start expanding the age range. Yeah, indeed. Well, and then the other thing is, keep in mind... Uh, and I say that I say this not for Scott's benefit, but for, you know, listener benefit. Age is not a proxy for maturity. There is a, a loose correlation between maturity and age, but it is not a reliable proxy. So you can have, you know, third and fourth graders who are perfectly, you know, professional, mature, capable enough to, uh, quiz. And you can have 12th graders who are really not any of those things, right? Uh, or maybe two of the, two of the three of these, those things, or one of the three of those things, right? So age is just not a proxy. Uh, and I know we start to then get into the, well, how do we know if somebody's eligible or not? Well, in, in PNW, we solve the, this, you know, Gordon, Gordian knot by cutting it and just saying, well, we're going to leave it up to the coach to determine. And if, if a quizzer ultimately starts having some behavioral issues, then, you know, officials are going to have some conversations with coaches and that's how we'll handle it. But we don't have to worry about that, you know, because coaches ultimately are the ones who need to be, you know, responsible for the maturity and professionalism of their team. And it it tends to work out really well. Yep. 
Cool. All right. Well, let's go on to CBQZ updates. So a couple of quick notices here. Um, I'm, it seems like I'm getting a lot of districts using CBQZ in, a, in an official capacity now. Um, prior to a couple of years ago, we had a, a lot of folks in a lot of districts using CBQZ, but it was more, you know, at the coach level or su- general support level. It wasn't something like, you know, uh, uh, officials in the districts were actually using it to run quiz meets. And it seems like this year we're on track to actually have quite a number of districts, mostly in the U.S., but quite a number of districts uh, using CBQZ in an official capacity. So I've been fielding questions from district coordinators and some coaches almost every day for, you know, the past few weeks, which is totally great. I love uh, helping out. So please, if you've got any CBQZ questions, feel free to, uh, I'm, I'm actually not just feel free, you are encouraged to email me and and get some help because I want to definitely help anybody who needs it. Um, I want to let everybody know that the uh, CQLT district set for a uh, district question set for acts is available in CBQZ, but you do have to be a district coordinator, coordinator and ask me to get access to it. And then I can uh, do some magic and get you access to a copy of that set. Uh, you can, of course, import whatever data that you want to yourself, uh, but it is a lot easier just to ask me for access. So if you are so inclined, email me at griffin at cbqz.org, or if you're in Canada, cbqz.org. And griffin is spelled G-R-Y-P-H-O-N. Of course, everybody should know that already. So there we go. All right. So lastly, some PNW status updates. Um we have our season schedule is starting up in less than six days. Basically on the 17th of September, we're going to be starting with a classic scramble meet. It is going to be in a new host church in Port Orchard, which is exciting. And we are going to have a leadership meeting during the lunch break. It is quite possibly the most critically important leadership meeting ever. Uh, please plan if you are one of the coaches to be there, uh, quizzers are welcome to attend as well if they'd like to. Uh, but if you are the head coach of a program, it is critically important that you are uh, there during the leadership meeting. We're going to be discussing all kinds of stuff. We're going to be planning out the season as we usually do, but we're also going to be talking about the future existence of PNW quizzing and what sort of things and stuff we want to be open to in terms of changing PNW quizzing to be able to continue it into the next 20 and hopefully 40 years and beyond. And that is what leads us right into our next big talk, uh, topic, because this is sort of the inspiration for this leadership meeting that's going to happen in you know five or six days. This is nothing new. Uh, and if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that you know Scott and I have been talking about this on and off for golly, a while now, but quizzing is facing uh, an existential crisis. Uh, Every program uh, in quizzing, and when I say program, I'm talking about, uh, let's say, uh, districts across the US and Canada. Every program has suffered a decline over the past 20 years. Uh, And then every program also as defined by, let's say, CMA versus Free Methodist versus Nazarene, every program has suffered some sort of decline over the last 20 years. Now, some have declined a whole lot more as a percentage of their overall size than others. Some have, in, in, in fact, ceased to exist. Uh, similarly, there have been districts in our uh, quiz program who have ceased to exist over the last 20 years. Um, so every program has suffered to some degree 
of decline. No one, to my knowledge, and I've, I've talked with a lot of folks, uh, Nazarene, Assemblies, uh, Free Methodists, like I said, a handful of others. Uh, and, and basically, other than, well, I mean, I've talked to other folks who are not, so I'm going through in my head here. There's been one program that's been growing, but it's not really a quizzing program. It's really more like a trivia sort of Jeopardy uh, kind of thing. And, you know, no offense to them. That's that's great. Uh, it promotes, uh, you know, Bible memorization. But quizzing as quizzing, I think, is just universally in, de in decline at this point. Uh, there are many programs that are at the sort of the brink of of ceasing to exist and they're being held together by what you would you might call a single point of fail failure like a single person uh who's running it and if that person you know god forbid a thousand times were hit by a bus or something or had to you know resign for whatever reason uh had to retire for whatever reason that program would not just dramatically suffer, but very likely collapse as a result of that one person or that one area, uh, you know, not being satisfied that we can see this, you know, in districts where, where you've got, um, you know, churches where you have a really dynamic, great coach, but that coach needs to move out of the area for work or some other sort of, um, you know, life changing event or life changing phase of the, of, of their life. And the, the local church program collapses because there's nobody else there. There's no assistant coach ready to take over. And there's a lot of programs that are right at that. Uh, cusp. Uh, PNW quizzing has not been immune to this decline. We're, we're actually surprisingly healthy relative to a lot of other U.S. districts right now. But nevertheless, we have still been in decline uh, over the past 20 years, and we can't rest on the fact that, well, we're just not as bad off as some other districts. Um, we all, I think, need to rally together, not just in PNW quizzing, but I mean, we all across all different programs and districts within quizzing, we need to rally together to try to turn the this decline into growth. Uh, so back in May, it was late May, it was after uh, PNW quizzing's uh, season had concluded, but it was prior to internationals. I hosted a PNW quizzing brainstorming barbecue. Um, it wasn't really a barbecue. I guess it was a grill. <laughs> we grilled uh, various meat products uh, on the grill at my house. And uh, I hosted most of the nearby quizzing uh, leadership folks, uh, folks who have been either officials or folks who were coaches or that sort of thing, just in the, in the general area where we are in the P greater Puget Sound area. And um, uh, it was an informal blunt, some very frank conversation about the status uh, and health of PNW quizzing and the future of of our of our mission and and our effect toward that mission. And to my surprise, the group was was extraordinarily unanimous in and of course that's a bit redundant. <laughs> it was unanimous, which was surprising to me in its significant willingness to embrace change, to save and grow quizzing. I was sort of expecting a little bit more kind of hedging of saying, yeah, we should, we, we do need to embrace change to some degree, but we don't want to lose what we already, what we have and who we are. And maybe we don't want to do a lot of change really quickly. And actually to my surprise, the group was actually very willing to embrace radical changes what we would normally consider to be radical uh, in quizzing, because we don't usually like a lot of big changes. They were very open to embrace those sort of changes. So at Scramble, we need to expand the com uh, conversation in PNW and plan 
what exactly are we going to do? How are we going to implement those changes so that we can ultimately save and grow quizzing? And this kind of this conversation that we're going to have is at Scramble, obviously, is going to be very focused around PNW quizzing in particular, but there is a much bigger conversation that is taking place and has been taking place and continues to take place, not just inside PNW, not just inside you know, international quizzing between, you know, US and Canada, but actually across different programs. I've been talking to a lot of folks within uh, Nazarene and Free Methodist and a few other programs where um, we're all facing similar concerns and we're all deeply motivated by the mission of quizzing to encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses as well as they can and to have a lot of fun doing it, right? So this has got me thinking, uh, and I've been talking to, I think this is the first time we've been, we're going to broach this subject with specificity and labels in the podcast, but Scott and I have been talking about this for, I don't know, quite some time. Scott, it's been, what, like a year, more than a year that we've been talking about this? Depends on how specifically, because we've probably talked about aspects of it for much longer than a year. Yeah, that's very true. Aspects of it for more than a year, but probably over a year we've been talking about what uh, the the ages of quizzing. And I'll I'll and I don't mean age in the sense of like, you know, 6th to 12th grade like we were just talking about, but I'm talking about sort of like um ages in the Lord of the Rings sort of concept of age, right? And I'll you know, this is a I'll, I'll give you I'll give you my definition of what I'm talking about here. Let's go into the Wayback Machine, uh, the time machine, and talk about the very beginning of quizzing. Where did quizzing come from? Quizzing originated after the Second World War through the Youth for Christ movement. Uh, and I call that the first age of Bible quizzing, where ultimately YFC created, invented uh, Bible quizzing. It was a youth activity. Youth for Christ is basically, you know, an inter, not intercollegiate, but, um, how would you describe it, Scott? What's a good way to enter church youth fellowship activity organization? I, that- I don't know. You're asking <laughs> the wrong person. Okay. Okay. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm not part of youth for Christ. So I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not very good. I mean, youth for Christ still exists to this day. Uh, they don't do quizzing in YFC, but it is still an active, healthy program. Uh, in fact, I'm actually in talks with a couple of folks in YFC uh, in my area about trying to get quizzing re-injected back into YFC. But but credit where credit is due, YFC invented uh, Bible quizzing, and that was the first age. And that was around, you know, the 50s and 60s and so forth. And it continued through to about the 70s and 80s. But it, during the 70s, it was in decline in YFC. So it basically, first age of quizzing starts, you know, after uh, World War II, it grows for a little bit. It starts to decline a bit uh, after some time. There's less and less interest in it. And the now adults who used to be youth in y for, uh, YFC who were involved in Bible quizzing in YFC were kind of like, hey, I really liked uh, this Bible quizzing thing. I'd like to do Bible quizzing. I'd like it. I'd like my my children uh, to be involved in in quizzing. How can we make this come about? And that's where the second age of quizzing was uh, born. And it, this is where. Uh, I define the second age of quizzing where denominations started in not inventing, but instantiating their own 
denominational specific quiz program, right? And there's, there's all kinds of different programs here. Like I've, like I've said, free Methodist, Nazarene assemblies and so forth and CMA. Uh, and they started at different times. So, uh, CMA program was a little bit later. I'm trying to remember who was one of the first ones. I think maybe assemblies was one of the first, but I, I maybe it, actually, no, maybe it's Nazarene. I don't know. Actually, don't listen to me. I don't remember exactly who, who was, was first in there, but ultimately the idea was different denominations started creating their own programs because they were like, well, whoever was first said, I miss YFC, uh, quizzing. Let's create something. What's the best way to create it? Well, in the late seventies and early eighties, denominational organizations were, were quite strong. There was a lot of, uh, communication that was going on a lot of not central control, but I guess there was some of that as well, but there was a lot of, of strength in the denominational organization. So if you're going to create a new program, a, a new youth program, and it needs to be interchurch, uh, by definition, you'd, you'd start to think, well, let's create this through our denomination. Right. And that starts in again, like the late seventies, early eighties, and it grows over time. Um, and it really peaks probably sometime in the early nineties, early to mid nineties is about when it peaks, give or take a little bit, but right around the two thousands, uh, early two thousand, late nineties, early two thousands. And again, it's very different for different programs. There begins to have a very slow at first, but, but steady, gradual decline in quizzing across all of the denominations. And when that starts, when those, those things peak and when they start to decline is different for different denominations and so forth. You know, lots of exceptions abound, but ultimately we've been seeing a 20 year ish decline in Bible quizzing in this second age of Bible quizzing. And thus why I've been talking about, and others have been talking about the idea of creating a third age of Bible quizzing, instantiating a new organization that is not denominationalistic, but uh, solves for a lot of the problems of and, and causes of decline in the second age of quizzing. Yeah. And there's there's been a lot of factors around the second age of quizzing that has caused quizzing to shrink that are largely unrelated to quizzing, if that makes sense. I think a great example would be, while I was quizzing, there was a church that that was by far the largest participant in Bible quiz. And then, um, timing is funny, they switched district, they switched program leaders, and then within a year or two, I think we're almost defunct as a church, at least as a quiz program. Um, And one might want to dig into a what what is it that the first program leader was doing that the second program leader maybe didn't do but in reality the the attendance and participation of the church and the youth group just precipitously dropped and once that happens it's going to happen for quizzing too so quizzing kind of almost has to be a follow-on that that's a good question for you griffin is do you think Bible quizzing participation should be as inextricably linked as it is today with a church and the health of that church? Not necessarily. I think there's something very healthy about having a quiz program be connected to a church for a lot of reasons. I mean, a big deal around it is going to be uh, oversight uh, and accountability of that program. So, uh, you know, usually you don't see pastors having a lot of time to be able to shepherd and coach quiz teams. So you're talking about somebody from, uh, from the laity volunteering their time. It's usually somebody who is a little bit younger, 
just because, you know, it's a closer connection to that sort of activity. Um, and so it's nice to have a, uh, some church level oversight there, but it's an Ach- Achilles heel. I don't know, two edged sword. I don't know. Come up with a better term of it. It can work both positively and negatively, right? So we have examples of churches right now. Uh, across the U.S. and Canada, where quizzing was very strong, and they had a senior pastor change, and the new senior pastor doesn't like quizzing and wants to kill quizzing in their church, and does. Uh, or, you know, we've we've had uh, a church in PNW where they we had a couple of very dynamic coaches who started up a program, had some great quizzers in that program, and it was a really solid team and really uh, sh- shockingly good for how you know, young in terms of, you know, number of seasons that team had, had had existed. And the church elders, church council uh, decided they didn't want to have that happen in their church anymore and shut down the the program. Uh, So it's very, it's, it's very unfortunate because I think it's deeply missing the point of quizzing uh, when folks act that way. But nevertheless, like there's some good that can come from being attached to a church. There can be some negative, right? So like if you've got a church with a decent sized youth group, uh, starting up a quiz program in that church is like you've got some positives there, right? Especially if you can have a youth pastor who supports the idea. It's like, well, you can go and evangelize quizzing at youth group and pick up a couple of kids pretty easily that way, right? Um, and that's great, right? Uh, but, you know, if you have a quiz program that is linked up pretty strongly with your youth program, and if then the youth program declines in the church, then certainly, you know, quizzing is going to decline um, as well. But on the flip side, quizzing can also be a recruiting tool, right? So when I was a coach, uh, there was a, 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 a friend of some quizzers who had been quizzing for a couple of, couple three years or so. And he wanted to participate in quizzing. Uh, he came from a non-churched uh, family. He wasn't, I don't think he was a Christian when he started uh, participating in quizzing, but he wanted to do it for the friendship aspect of it and the, and a little bit of the competitive aspect of it. And ultimately over time he became a Christian and eventually in effect, recruited his parents into the local church to attend as as a regular attender because of Bible quizzing. Now, that doesn't happen terribly often in my experience, but I'd love to see it happen more frequently. Definitely. And um, kind of jumping back to why is the second age of quizzing in decline, there's just a lot less church attendance, um, youth group attendance, um, and it looks like Griffin put a note, denominant a lot less denominationalism, um, denominationalism. Denominationalism. Yeah. It's on the decline. Um, denominations by and large are tending to kind of grip onto the status quo. And it, it reminds me of like print newspapers in the late nineties, early two thousands, where they were like gripping onto this notion of like, we must remain awesome with a print newspaper, not realizing that like, well, you're going to go out of business if you keep gripping on to the, to the historical status quo here. I think we've got a lot of denominations that are kind of aware that they are in decline, but they're not willing to take the necessary steps to evolve. Yeah. So those are a lot of realities that I think are affecting Bible quizzing that are, um, I don't know if this is putting blinders on, but they're not really related to Bible quizzing, right? They're not something that Bible quizzing is specifically doing um, good or doing bad. Right. So then 
Okay, so that's that. Those are some kind of fa- factors that are causing quizzing to decline. There are also stuff that just exists in the second age of quizzing that make it hard to grow quizzing. So it's not it's not necessarily spurring the decline of quizzing participation, but it's probably hindering the, any potential growth. Um, so one is cost. There are it's kind of cost and equipment are pretty linked. Um, Because equipment is not cheap, not just benches, but um, pads and consoles, those are cheap. Those are expensive as well. Um, And then attending any meet has some amount of expense, right? You have to drive there. You have to have a vehicle for it, Um, especially your all-star inter-district meets. Those are expensive to run and expensive to get to. So those those are hindrances. Um, to, to growing quizzing beyond whatever your current baseline is of participation. Tribal knowledge is, an, is another one. I think any any sport or group is going to have tribal knowledge and terminology and acronyms and you know things that aren't intentional to make somebody feel like an outsider, um, but they they definitely can hinder people joining and um, feeling like it's easy to join. And so a good example of tribal knowledge is the rule book, right? Like over time, we continue to add things that are improvements for all of us current participants, but may actually be um, a negative to growing quizzing. Along with that, as the rule book grows, there's complexity. So I think equipment, tribal knowledge, and complexity are all kind of wrapped together, <laughs> Um, between equipment and the rule book and just general terminology, there's um, a lot of issues. So I'm not going to say issues um, because quizzing currently happens, right? But I think they are they make it hard to grow quizzing. Additionally, to maintain denominational control, non-denominations or um, secondary denominations are made second class. So like in the CMA, I'm pretty sure every district has non-CMA churches that participate, but at the end of the day, there are various hierarchical levels that make it so that you have a different level of um, say and control if you are not a CMA church, whether that's the way that a a local district has set up their governance structure, but looking to, there are rules on the CQLT level, right? You can't have like we can't have six non-CMA CQLT people. Um, and then at the end of the day, the CMA is the ones running quizzing. Or, I mean, not, I mean, I guess the name running quizzing. They, they own quizzing. How, how, like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think CMA National Office like um, runs quizzing. I think the CQLT ultimately runs quizzing. And actually, I wouldn't even say the CQLT does. I, I think certain individuals on the CQLT run quizzing. Um, and then uh, ultimately the CQLT governs quizzing, but then CMA owns quizzing. And ultimately the, the issue here is if you are, and this is not a, you know, a, a diss on CMA, it's a diss on denominations, right? Because ultimately if you've got a denominational program, you generally want to maintain denominational control of that program. If you're, if you're the head of that denomination or heads of that denomination. And so as a result, you have to put non denoms, as I call them, folks who are not part of your denomination, you have to give them second class status, you have to give them less of a voice or no voice right now to CMA's credit, they haven't given non denoms, uh, no voice, they have given, uh, given, 
uh, non-denom's a second-class uh, voice. It, it's just that you will you will always have a minority voice, to, uh, regardless of of how many there are of you, you know, in in the program. So. If you're talking about, you know, it, right now the CQLT has six members. Uh, there can only be a maximum of two that are non-CMA. Uh, well, this is just fine if we've got somewhere around 20% of our churches participating that are non-CMA. But we've got a situation in a lot of uh, districts where it's well over 50%. Uh, in P&W, it's 100%. Uh, you know, so it, it's, it's very, it, it's no longer the, the case where, you know, it's mostly CMA churches and about 20% are non-CMA. Cause then I would, I would say like, yeah, having 20% representation and capped at that is, is not terribly unreasonable. Uh, but, uh, ultimately if you're, I'm, I'm kind of talking in circles here, but ultimately it's a, it, it is the nature of denominational denominational control that forces non-denoms into kind of either a second class or no class, depending upon the program. And to CMA's credit, the non-denoms are second class, not no class. Right. And I think the key points here are, as Griffin said, we're not necessarily like the CMA is not unique. I think all quizzing programs that are run under a specific denomination um, do something roughly similar. Um, Right. And some and also, more egregiously than than CMA, right? There, there's a there's a program I won't name it, um, but there's a program where if you're not part of the, if you are not, you know, a ten, regular attender and member of the denomination, you don't get to participate in any level of leadership, including official. Right, and we're also not necessarily passing a judgment on whether a denomination should or should not do that. We're just stating that if a denomination does make non-denoms a second-class citizen of some kind in quizzing, they will be less likely to participate than if yeah, they had yeah, equal yeah. equal um, status, right? Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that is debatable. You could definitely debate on the amount to which um, someone would be less likely to participate if they are a second-class denomination. Um, but that is definitely something that I think we've talked to people that would want to participate um, to some degree in CMA quizzing, but at the end of the day, don't want, like, we'll make the decision not to because of that second class stat. Right, right. Indeed. I th- Is that all? No, no, no. Oh, um, there's also translational preferences, right? Um, this is an interesting one because Griffin has ideas that I don't, well, we've gone around and around a million times. But anyway, um, the fact of the matter is that some people will either choose or not choose to do quizzing based on the material version being used for a whole host of reasons, right? <laughs> they might be good reasons, they might be bad reasons, it doesn't really matter. Um, but if a quiz program is going to pick a single translation, they are um, limiting the pool of participants by doing that. Um, and I guess choosing a certain translation over another one would limit the pool further, right? Like if someone chose the old King James version, they probably are severely limiting their potential particip- participation pool. Right, indeed. And I think this is the last bullet on stuff that makes it hard to grow quizzing. Um, Actually, this isn't something that makes it hard to grow quizzing, but it's a reality, is that the big quizzing meets, whether it's your big final district meet of the year for a given district or meets like Great West or Winter Nationals or Internationals, the costs are largely fixed, right? You have to pay to secure a venue um, or, you know, ideally free, but I think for a lot of them you have to pay. Um, 
and maybe things um, for your officials, but the costs are pretty fixed where your income or revenue is not. So for internationals, if internationals has 34 teams participating versus 12, um, the feasibility of running that meet is way different. And unfortunately, as quizzing has declined, both because of um, societal facts of the second age of quizzing, but also because of pandemic, it means that it's harder to run the big meets because it just doesn't make money sense. Um, The cost of renting a venue isn't changing a whole lot, right? And if you have fewer people um, paying for it, you have to charge them all more. And so that's an unfortunate thing as quizzing declines, because when quizzing is big and robust, I'm sure it's very similar for CMD, because CMD charges um, per participant per meet, because they have so few meets. Um, If they have four, five, six hundred participants at their year-end district meet, I bet you they can charge everybody a lot less than if they have 250 participants. Yeah, indeed. There's also a couple of other factors that go into costs as well. So inflation, while uh, I hate saying this, but I mean, the reality is on a long enough time frame, uh, inflation is transitory. So however you want to define that, it's certainly not going to be, you know, a couple of months, but it's probably more like a couple of years. Uh, it's definitely not a couple of decades, right? So ergo, you, you expand your timeline long enough and it, it does become transitory. But whatever the, whatever the length of time, inflation that we are dealing with right now is making a significant impact to costs in, in a variety of ways. One of that, uh, one of, one of those ways is, is fuel, fuel cost, right? So, uh, if you're doing local nearby quiz meets, your costs aren't that much different. Although, you know, depending upon your drive time, it, it could be. Uh, but if you're talking about, say, inter-district meets, uh, even just invitationals, the cost of gas, if gas, if gas goes up by, you know, if, if, if the cost of gas doubles, that represents a, 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 you know, pretty substantial cost to the overall, uh, transit experience, right? Uh, and of course, then all sorts of uh, secondary costs go up because of fuel costs, right? I'm not just putting all the blame on fuel costs, but all of that kind of interrelates. Similarly, if you're talking about a, a meet like internationals, uh, P&W realistically cannot participate in internationals without buying uh, air tickets, right? Uh, airplane tickets. And uh, though the cost of those airplane tickets are are substantial, <laughs> right? Um, and so while I appreciate folks trying to find ways of cutting the cost of the actual meat itself of internationals itself, you're not going to be able to like, maybe you'll find a way to cut $20 here, $30 there. But like, I still have to turn around to a parent and say, your cost is about a thousand dollars because you have to put in all this extra, you know, cost to cover jet fuel, you know, and, and hotels and so forth, right. That are beyond what say a district, uh, that is a little bit closer to international's location has to deal with. So I'm not, I'm not saying that these are insurmountable and I'm not, and, and I'm, this last little bit tends to affect further away districts. So the Canadian districts and PNW tend to be more affected by this than say districts that are a little bit more, uh, centrally clustered, uh, together. Uh, but all of these sorts of things factor into uh, the difficulty to both sustain quizzing in the second age, 
but certainly affect it deeply to expand quizzing, right? And I'll give you an example here. Imagine I'm talking to somebody who's in Nevada, right? And why am I picking Nevada? I don't know. It's just a state. Um, and it tends to be far away from everybody else uh, in, in terms of quizzing. So let's say I'm talking about uh, uh, to somebody in Nevada about trying to start up Bible quizzing. Uh, I have to, they, they have not, ex they have not experienced how awesome quizzing is. So I have to explain how awesome quizzing is. And is, is my explanation of quizzing worth a thousand dollars per quizzer to participate in, in internationals? Probably not. Right. Now, can I convince them that it's worth spending a hundred dollars? Uh, maybe. Right. Uh, and that's sort of the, the, the goal here, the point that I'm trying to make. It's, it's not that there's anything that we can necessarily do at internationals per se to drop the cost because again, PNW is not going to drive. We're going to have to fly and the cost of airfare is the cost of airfare, right? Um, but we do need to keep that into consideration when we're talking about trying to grow quizzing, especially into districts that, that don't current, currently exist. Uh, and where those districts or future districts would be, say, very far away from uh, certain either internationals meets or interdistrict meets and so forth. Yep. Um, I think there are a lot of, I'm calling them realities of quizzing, that have kind of been hidden, right? Like when church participation is really high, quizzing looks really robust, but not necessarily because of anything that quizzing is doing. And when the bulk of your participants are in the north, East um, and the districts that are far flung can largely make international internationals participation happen. Then it it kind of obfuscates the fact that it is um, a hardship, right, or a potential hindrance for um, a district that hasn't participated yet. Right, indeed. Well, and imagine if you're trying to grow quizzing in, say, Northern California, right? I've actually got a. Um, uh, there's a senior pastor of a church in Northern California who was, uh, who actually quizzed. I think he was quizzing in either West Can or Canadian Pacific, and I'm not sure which. I think it was West Can. Now, this was many years ago, um, when he was a quizzer, but he was a quizzer in one of those Canadian districts. He's now the senior pastor of a church in Northern California. Um, I met him through a different association of, of, of pastors. And of course, whenever I talk to new pastors, I can't not talk about quizzing. And he said, oh, yeah, I used to quiz. And we talked more. And I discovered, oh, he was actually a CMA Bible quizzer from one of the Canadian districts. And we've talked a bit about his experience and so forth. He would love to get quizzing started up at his church. But he is currently not attending an, uh, an alliance church. He's in a non-alliance church. He's a pastor ordained in a non-alliance denomination. He would love to get quizzing started up as, at his church. He would love to be able to participate. But the idea of trying to, I mean, he, he knows the value of quizzing because he's experienced quizzing himself and he wants quizzing to exist for his church. But the idea of trying to float this notion of like, yeah, join CMA quizzing where you have to spend a thousand dollars a quizzer or more to be able to participate at internationals and you will never have a voice, you know, equal to the level of contribution that you're making, right? Um, is that's a, that's a very, uh, you know, bitter pill to swallow. And so it gets in the way of growing quizzing. Yeah. I don't know that I have anything to add on that. Well, so we talked about some negative stuff. Let's talk about some positive stuff. Where can we go from here? I want to, 
I don't have a firm idea of what the third age is going to look like, but I have some basic ideas and I'm going to kind of throw these out here and, and Scott, I want you to challenge me on some of these things or, you know, constructive criticism, or if you don't have any, just say, yes, I totally agree, (laughs) whatever you want to do here. But as we go through these things, I'm going to kind of lay out some bullet points of what I think third age probably should look like so that it can be an environment to grow quizzing. That's really at the heart of what we're trying to aim at is how do we organize quizzing such that it is set up in the best possible way to grow either organically or inorganically, but how do we get it to grow uh, rather than either stay static or what's happening right now, multiple decades of persistent gradual decline. And so the first thing is, I think we need the third age of quizzing to have, and this is going to sound weird and kind of philosophical here, but I think I can back this up. I think we need an objective mission statement that can be turned into tracked metrics, both uh for direct measuring of, of heuristics and reasonably decent proxies uh, to some to some degree. And when I mean by objective mission statement, I'm saying, you know, that that phrase that Scott and I have used quite a number of times, uh, encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses. Well, uh, that's an objective mission statement. It doesn't, um, it doesn't have to be the mission state statement of of the third age. But I'm saying there does need to be some sort of objective mission statement, because then we can take everything that we do and measure it against the objective and say, does is this pro-mission or anti-mission? And that helps us make a lot of wise, long-term leadership uh, decisions. Yep. I'm always a fan of something that you can measure um, as long as you get like the measurement of it gets the behavior that you want, right? Um, There are a lot of things that sound really, well, not just sound really great, are really great, but you can't measure them. And so would would make a terrible mission statement because you want something that people can point to and kind of as a, a North Star, right? Orient your direction all towards this thing and be able to um, know how you're doing on that path. Right, exactly. And it's important to recognize that oftentimes what we measure tends to be what we optimize for. And so oftentimes it's critically important to pick very carefully that which we want to measure and optimize for, because we want the optimization of that thing to be the goal rather than an outcome from that goal, right? And so by saying encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, it's missing out on a lot of spiritual development aspects of it. But the belief that I have held very, very strongly, I know Scott believes this also, if you achieve this objective mission, the mo- encourage the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, the spiritual aspects will take care of itself because we believe in the power of, of, of scripture. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminating, illuminating that knowledge in the hearts of quizzers. So we don't need a a, a bad, a non-objective measure of spiritual development, uh, we can actually track something that's more objective in that regard. So the second thing that I have on this list is simplified rules. Uh, we need to have simplified rules 
without losing the essence of what quizzing is, right? And this is going to be probably one of the most bitter pills for the existing quizzing community to swallow. Scott and myself in particular, we love nerding out on the complexities of rules. Uh, we love talking inside quizzing, hence the name of the podcast. We love going down the rabbit holes of the complexities of the rules and the implications thereof. But that becomes a stumbling block to the growth of quizzing. And we need to reverse the course from ever increasing complexity of rules to ever simplified rules up to a point. There is a particular point, like, like as simple as, as, as Einstein used to say, make quizzing as simplified as possible, but no simpler, right? The idea of, of, uh, make quizzing as simple as it can be in terms of rules without losing the essence of what quizzing is. We need the competitive spirit. We need, I think, there's an argument to be able to, uh, to be said that three team quizzing is better than, say, two team or certainly better than four team quizzing. Um, we need to protect the essence, the true core essence of what quizzing is, because it, that is the, the thing that engages quizzers and motivates quizzers to memorize. But we need to do everything that we can to simplify rules to be able to get to that point. And so my, my sort of litmus test in looking at rules now is, can I simplify this without making quizzing not quizzing? And if the answer is yes, and, and nine times out of 10, it is yes, then that simplification is, in my mind, justified. Yeah, and I think we're kind of uh, a result of, um, not a result, what's the word? I think we are all the, the frogs in the, the kettle where the water has been slowly turned up over time without us noticing it. And I think I'm, I could be the single biggest contributor <laughs> to turning that, the, the water up because when I looked at the rule book, and I wanted to make changes and improvements and additions and subtractions. It was the goal was for people who are participants in quizzing, um, make it more fair, um, more repeatable, consistent, make sure that the incentives are what we want, right? That we're rewarding material knowledge and execution, all that stuff. Now, those are good goals in some senses, but probably subtly over time, we make it harder and harder and harder and harder for anybody new to join quizzing without having like loads of very experienced people around them to, to take them by the hand and explain things to them. And it really just comes down to what is it that we want to optimize for, right? Um, the rule book and the continued iterations on it probably are optimizing for um, internationals competition, right? <laughs> Um, fairness, rewarding um, the quizzers who have worked the hardest and all that, um, but is definitely not optimizing for participation. Yeah, and I also don't want to set up a false dichotomy here either. I think we can both simplify and inc inc improve all of the things that you're talking about. Like, like obviously, I'm one of the you know, repeat offenders of adding complexity into the rule book as, as well. Uh, you know, I, I, I keep harping on the idea of wanting to have objective rules over subjective rules. And, and I've talked at length about the justifications behind that sort of thing, because again, it's repeatable, uh, it's measurable, uh, subjective is not right. Um, and so there is this argument to say, well, it's easier to come up with a subjective rule than an objective rule. And I think that's true. Uh, by and large, it's easier to come up with subjective rules than objective rules. But we take that 
step too far when we then say it is impossible to come up with objective roles. I think it is entirely possible to do it and not end up in a scenario where we are creating stilted quizzing or, or, you know, all kinds of complexities and ever increasing complexities in the rule book to be able to do that. Now, is it easier to come up with complex objective rules than simplified objective rules? Uh, oh yeah, it, simplified objective rules are 10x more difficult to come up with than objective, um, uh, complex rules, right? Um, but just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try and it doesn't mean it's impossible. I think the nice thing about a lot of this stuff is it's additive effort over time, right? If you're going to construct a giant building, it takes an, an awful lot of effort to be able to put that together, a, a lot of cost investment to be able to make that happen. But once it's there, the building doesn't go away necessarily, right? Um, I think, um, especially when we're talking about something intellectual, once we create objective simplified rules that optimize for quizzing growth and, uh, and optimize for all the stuff that Scott talked about, you know, fairness, um, and, and so forth and, and equality of, of access and so forth. I think once we have that, it doesn't go away. Um, it's really more in our process of iterating over rules. I think we have oftentimes focused on things that we want to accomplish rather than we, we haven't, uh, let me, a different way of saying it. I don't think we focused on trying to make our rules as simple as they could be. And I think as we focus more attention on doing that, we will be able to improve this particular bullet point. Now, you um, you brought up two different types of rules. One was um, simplified and objective, and the other one was complex and objective. What was yeah, it? right. And And I mean, imagine a situation where you have a simple subjective rule. And it gets re and, and I, I will harp on this and say, well, okay, it's simple and subjective, but I would prefer to have an objective rule. And so the argument is, well, the only way to have an objective rule is to have it be complex. And so then we, we're, we're faced with a situation of saying, well, what is better, a simplified subjective rule or a complicated objective rule? But I think that's a false dichotomy, a false dichotomy. I can, I can talk, I promise. Um, I, I think we can come up with objective, sim uh, objective simplified rules. It's just hard to do. So I think an example of a subjective and simple rule would be the current language on a correct answer. Where oh, yeah. Yeah. It says an answer is correct when it contains the information requested, right? Um, and sure, there's there's some language about things that can make you incorrect. Um, but as far as what makes you correct, it's very simple and it's also very subjective. Um, what would are you able to take this current simple and subjective rule? What would be an example of a um, objective but complex? Oh yeah, that's easy. Um, so. Objective but complex, it would be something like says these words, but not these other words within this particular time and doesn't go outside of context by providing X, 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 you know, example, 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 right? Um, you could turn that one phrase into like three or four paragraphs of content uh, to define a very complex objective rule. I am definitely not in favor of doing that. Um, the objectiveness of that 
while I love the objectiveness of it, is actually probably ROI negative relative to the subjective simple rule. I'm just saying that there is going to be out there a an objective simple rule that we can we can find it's just going to be the hardest of those of those things to put together right because what what's 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 is it easier to write a complex rule or a simple rule it's actually easier to write a complex rule uh it's sort of the idea of um my my apologies for the length of this letter i didn't have time to write a shorter one i think it's easier to write a complex rule than a simple rule um, all other things being equal, it's easier to write a subjective rule than an objective rule. But we shouldn't. We're we're not involved in quizzing because we want to do that which is easy, but because we want to do that which is hard. Well, not not for hard sake, but because of um, a desired outcome. Yeah, exactly. I'm sort of quoting you know JFK here. We're doing the things that are hard because the values of those hard things are worth the delta. I heard, uh, I don't know if this would be an idiom, but it's, if you're faced with two options, do the hard one because um, it's likely to have a better payoff because otherwise, if it, if it didn't, then it would have kind of ceased to be in existence as a possibility. Yeah, exactly. Um, you would have you would have already made the decision. Uh, it's a Naval Ravikant uh, uh, saying, and I'm probably butchering his last name. My apologies, Naval. But um, yeah, it's a it's a great saying. It's a great heuristic, right? Which you sure can't just put blinders on and say like I'm always going to do the hard thing. Um, but if you have done reasonable information gathering, there's a decent chance that it's harder for a reason, right? Because it pays off better, but in the longer term. Um, and I wanted to also throw out an example of a simple but objective rule that doesn't do what we want it to, right? So um, the simple but subjective rule is the current. An answer is correct when it contains information requested. A complex but objective rule would be what Griffin said, where there's just tons and tons of language around um, what makes an answer correct. And every bit of it can be objective, but it's complex. A simple and objective rule would be, it has to be word perfect, right? But I think we don't want to do that on interrogative questions or every single question type, but there's at least a discussion to be had there, right? That's a, that's an example of simple and objective, and it is not the only example of uh, simple and objective uh, with regards to this particular rulebook language. Right, indeed. So let's see, moving on a couple of things that I, a couple other things that I would like to see the third age be and look like. And, and of course, you know, it's, it amuses me that we've, we've spent the bulk of time here so far talking about <laughs> the rule book. Um, when in fact, I think actually the third age is, is less about the rule book than it is about everything else. Uh, but hey, you know, it's got me. This is inside quizzing. So yes, we're going to totally nerd out about rules. So moving on from rules to, to more of the stuff that I think third age needs to be, I think. There needs to be a means in the third age of quizzing such that somebody completely unfamiliar with quizzing can be invited to a meet and be able to meaningfully for participate in that meet. And I'll, I'll describe what I mean here. Let's say you're a quizzer. You've been a quizzer for a couple of seasons, a couple of three seasons, and uh, you're uh, a friend comes over. It's a, you know, early Saturday morning, this doesn't make any sense because our meets start pretty early in the morning. But let's say there was a meet that was going to start at 11 o'clock and your friend comes over at nine o'clock, uh, wants to play Xbox or something. And you're like, oh, I'd love to, but I can't because I'm going to go to this quiz meet, you know, in a couple of hours. Hey, do you want to come with me? 
I want a scenario where that person can come to the meet, be invited to the meet, and actually have an opportunity to meaningfully participate to some degree in that meet, right? So literally, what are the implications of this? What the implications are, that means you can show up to a meet and actually have zero memorized and know absolutely nothing from the rule book, but actually still participate in a way that earns some amount of points for your team. Now, probably not a lot, right? We're talking about token points here. Uh, because we don't want to devolve quizzing into something that is that loses the essential essence of what quizzing is, right? So we definitely want to reward and uh, memorization, and we want to be able to provide advan ever advanced levels of differentiation by memorization commitment. But nevertheless, I think in that that bottom level uh, right now there is sort of a minimalistic cutoff below a certain amount of investment. You really can't participate in quizzing. I mean, you basically sort of, you can fill a seat, but that's about it. What I want to do is alter that such that somebody can be invited. They don't necessarily have a huge alteration to the points of, of a team, but they can put at least some non-zero value on the board. I think that's, that's critically important when we talk about the idea of being able to evangelize quizzing, because quizzing is one of those things where it's not mainstream. I would like it to be mainstream, but it's not mainstream. And so we have to c convince people to invest before they have a good idea of what quizzing is. And that's a that's a hard sell. I uh, I think it's going to be a whole lot easier to grow, grow quizzing by getting people to be able to show up and say, okay, well, you know, let's like a baseball game. I've never heard of baseball. I've never seen baseball. And Scott says, hey, why don't you come down to the field? We're going to play a game of baseball. I'm like, well, okay. So I show up and I can play. Now, I'm not going to play well. I may never get on base, right? But I can at least show up and I can, you know, Scott can take, take this piece of wood and swing at that ball really hard and try to hit it that way, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. And if I know enough of that, then I can just listen to people yelling at me to run to various different bases. And if I mess up, I mess up. But at least I can participate to some meaningful degree. And then I might say, hey, you know, I came in dead last in terms of individual contribution to my team, but like, uh, I, I, I see everybody enjoying this and it was actually kind of fun even for me in this, in, in this moment, maybe I want to go home and memorize some verses and see if I can do a little bit better than next meet. Yeah. Two points I wanted to highlight here for some examples, let's take some board and card games, right? Like if someone has never played sorry or Parcheesi, hopefully I'm not dating myself. I probably am with these. Um, you could in 30 seconds, explain enough that they can meaningfully play the game. They will definitely not grasp every limit of strategy and optimization possible, but they can play the game and, and probably have a good time doing it. Whereas if you're proposing to play, I don't know, Magic the Gathering with all the expansion decks or Settlers of Gatan with all the expansion decks, it's almost impossible for somebody to meaningfully play. They will almost immediately either have no idea what to do or do something that's not allowed um, just because of the rule set in front of them and the learning curve required. And I think quizzing is currently much more like the latter than the former. And we probably want it to be a lot more towards the former. And secondarily, I think a, a very useful way of thinking of it is this change is not meant to make quizzing better for the 12th grade Scott Petersons of the world, right? Like it, it might, it could make it worse. 
Um, but it, it's to increase the overall pr- participation in ways that we, we can't now because we're limited by all of these um, current bastions of quizzing. Right, right, indeed. I want to sort of, I want to throw out the idea of chess, right? Chess might be a good example here. Chess, in terms of like teaching chess, like you can teach somebody who's never played chess before the game of chess from a how do I move my pieces and and how do I play the game? You can teach that in in a few minutes. It's really, there's not a lot there. The level of strategy and effort and study required to become competitively reasonable at chess is non-trivial. I mean, it's massive. And, and it like, and the higher you go in the levels of, of, of chess competition, it becomes exponentially more difficult to differentiate yourself at, at higher and higher levels, right? All the way up to Magnus and so forth, right? So like the, the game inherently is fairly simple, but at the higher levels, that simple, the simple game has layers and layers and layers, nearly infinite layers of complexity from the strategy and implications of simple rules. Another one, even probably more on point to this this idea than chess, is Go. Go is, I mean, the, the rules of Go are super simple. I, I forget there's like, what, five rules or six or something? Like, it's, it's, it's incredibly simple. Very, very straightforward. You can teach somebody like how to play go in the sense of like what is a legal and not legal move and how would you go about doing those moves you can teach them in like two minutes but to not lose <laughs> a game of go to somebody who's even an a, a, a just sort of a basic level player takes a fair bit of study and then of course you know once you get up into the the higher levels of go it's just crazy insane the the level of dedication and focus and time necessary to be competitive at the at the upper levels of go um i see i would love to see something similar in in quizzing again maintaining the essence of what quizzing is add the ability for somebody to come in literally off the street and be able to participate and yet still have the scott petersons of the world in 12th grade uh do things that you know are go level you know uh relevant right and that sort of thing so anyway moving on to the next one um I want the third age of quizzing to be designed to be hyper alterable and customizable at a local level, but not by virtue of a void. In other words, I'd love to be able to see, and this is, this is related to the rule book, but I think it's really more around defining best practices and variants of best practices and say, like, here is an idea, an optional way of doing things and another optional way of doing things and another optional way of doing things and laying these things out in a smorgasbordian kind of best practices document or, or website or whatever it happens to be to convey the information such that a, uh, at a local level, either a church or a district or a zone within a district or interdistrict or whatever, they can again instantiate quizzing that is the essence of what quizzing is, but is wildly different yet still connectable to what a different district or a different zone uh, might happen to be doing. What would be an example of, some, but not by virtue of a void? Yeah, I think I I need to go into some details to come up with a, I need to think about it to come up with a good example, but I'll give you a bad example. 
Um, a bad example would be like how to structure your prelims and say your brackets, or even to have prelims and brackets within a quiz meet, right? Uh, I think describing different options and laying out a few, like, like here's some ways of doing brackets, uh, and you can pick from these things. And here's a way to create a new bracket and theories behind how to create different styles of brackets and, and theories behind how to create different prelim sets and which ones make the more sense versus others. And, uh, you know, a special paragraph that talks about why XYZs are terrible and should not happen. But if you want to, here's how you do them anyway. You know, something along those lines. This is not exactly a terribly, um, exciting example. I would love to come up with a better one, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but the idea being is to, in, is really encourage new districts starting from scratch to be able to say like, okay, here are the rules, but you have a wide amount of latitude to alter those things and do your own thing to, to a degree. And here are some specific things that you can pick from the smorgasbord of ideas. So anyway, this, the next one is multi-translational. Um, this is a big bomb. I know people out there are thinking like, wait, whoa, whoa, how can you possibly do multi-translational quizzing? Now, sure, Griffin, maybe we can do, you know, one district does one translation and another district does another translation, and we call that multi-translational. But that's not what I mean by multi-translational, because if you have district one that, you know, quizzes out of the NIV, and you have district two that quizzes out of the NASB, well, that's fine for those districts, but those two districts can't compete against each other, right? Not in the current uh, second age of quizzing. In the third age of quizzing, I want those two districts to be able to compete against each other uh, fairly and equitably, right? Now, multi-translational does not necessarily mean that your local church has to support multiple translations. It doesn't even mean your district has to, uh, but rather that the rules are structured in such a way that it is possible to be able to do that if a zone or district or church or set of churches or interdistrict or internationals wanted to go in that direction for whatever reason, right? And I think there there is a way to do this. I've actually been working on this way. Um, obviously, for things like quotes and finishes and so forth, it's pretty trivial. How do you make it work fairly for interrogatives and multiple answers and reference questions and, and cross-references and other sorts of question types. There are ways of doing that. Uh, it starts to get complex. I am working on trying to decomplexify the, the rules because, again, I want simple and objective rules that allow for multi-translational. And the value of this, then, is it removes one of the stumbling blocks to acquiring new participation, right? So, I've, I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's a, um, there's a school in our local area that, uh, is a, it's a private Christian school and they have all of their curriculum around, sort of structured around the NASB. It's not so much that they think the NASB is the only true, you know, divinely inspired translation or anything. It's just that that's the one that they've picked and that's the one they teach. And they've been told about quizzing and they're like, hey, quizzing sounds really cool. I like quizzing. We want to start a quizzing team 
but we and we'd like to participate with your quizzing program but the the idea that we are memorizing niv is a non-starter for them not because they think the niv is is somehow inferior to nasb but that it would cause a significant problem for their students to you know on one hand be studying and memorizing nasb for their school and then also have to memorize niv to be able to participate in quizzing so Having an environment where we support multi-translational at a competitive level means that this school doesn't have that stumbling block to be able to uh, get involved. Yep. And I think, again, something that I want to highlight is, will people be able to point out downsides of a multi-translational competitive world? Absolutely. But ability to point out any or a lot of downsides does not necessarily mean that it is um, a bad choice um, because we are trying to find ways to make it easier than ever before to grow participation in quizzing, which requires doing probably a lot of things quite differently than they've been done before. Right. And at the same time, I don't want to turn quizzing, I don't want to lose the essence of quizzing. I've said that before, obviously, but one of the essence of quizzing is not turning quizzing into a quotathon. I, I really don't want to see quizzing just be nothing but quotes and finishes. I just don't, I don't think that's as encouraging and optimal to the mission as the the full essence of what quizzing is with our different question types. So, you know, there's an easy way to make multi-translational work that would be very simple and objective, but I think would be counter-missional. So I need, we need simple objective and pro-missional for multi-translational. So another one, and, and related to this, is I want to be able to expand and have continued options for expandable question type options, because I think question types, while it is a certain amount of complexity in the rule book versus just saying everything is a quote, um, everything is a quote would certainly be simpler. I think that kind of complexity encourages greater interest. Um, and I want to go in that direction. But what I don't want to see happen are question type options that allow for specialization such that the specialization results in less memorization, right? So I'm, I'm totally cool with, with type specialization, provided that that is a means by which encouragement of, of memorization is taking place rather than a sort of a crutch to avoid memorization. Yep. So I think, I mean, I don't want to, well, I guess I am picking on multiple answers, but there are type that you could, especially when there's a lot of them in a, in a, in a quiz, you could memorize a pretty small amount of the material and score pretty well at a meet like international. Um, but what Griffin is proposing is for an example, maybe there's a multiple answer question that's worth 10 points or 20 points um, and you can get it right. But if you then give the reference that it comes from, you get additional points. So it's kind of um, a multifaceted way of testing quizzers and potentially scoring them um, that they can kind of choose your own experience within it. Um, that should reward people that do know the material as a whole better. Um, because the current world is that for quizzers that are either inexperienced or don't know the whole material or know very little material, the biggest factor of a question being difficult for them is the amount of required information that they have to give um, to be counted correct, which is why I quote these two ver verses is almost the hardest question for a young quizzer um, because they have to get all of that, all of those words word perfect. But for an inter international level quizzer, it's almost the easiest, um, given the reference, because they know the whole material. 
Flip side, for very experienced and proficient quizzers, the, the biggest aspect of a question being difficult is how long does it take it to become unique paired with how fast is everybody else jumping on it, which is why chapter references at internationals are so difficult or quote questions in a gospel year um, because of it takes a, a couple extra syllables to become unique um, and people are jumping right on that edge where it's not unique yet. And so if that's the case, it's really hard where these two very, very different things are difficult for these different type, like groups of quizzers. It's hard within a single quiz to provide a test for both of them. Um, But this kind of setup is hopeful to be able to provide that test where um, maybe a younger or inexperienced quizzer, quizzer doesn't know a whole lot of material, can get the easier portion of a question right and get 10 points, um, but a more experienced quizzer can get maybe three parts of it right and get 20, 30, 40, or 50 points for being able to do all of that. Right, indeed. So the stuff we've been talking about so far has been, I don't want to call it operational, but it's been sort of quiz meat quiz quiz stuff right um and and i and i think there's a lot more that third age needs to be in this particular arena but i want to sort of shift arenas or shift kind of mental zones for a, a moment and and instead of talking more about operational things uh from a from a quiz perspective or a meat perspective i want to talk about an organizational structure because i think one of the things about the 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 second age what was different between the the first age and the second age right youth for christ versus denominations uh you could make the argument that a denomination was basically just a different org where youth for christ was org number one and denomination number one was org number two and and so forth right but there were certain aspects of how Youth for Christ as an org was organized and is organized that is different than the how the denominations are organized. And I think that there is equally a difference of what the third age needs, the organization of the third age needs to look like in that regard. Similar along the idea of, of, of big age differences here. Um, so in age three, I think all participants need to be treated as equals and all voices need to matter equally. This is a, this is going to be a bitter pill to swallow, to swallow, uh, for some, right? But ultimately, if we are going to try to encourage mergers of existing age two programs together, we can't have a situation where there's a, you know, a, a major, a majority minority relationship where the minority joins and has second class citizenship to the majority, right? Um, the minority will not, <laughs> will not want to join as a result of that, right? Um, if you are, you know, strongly pro CMA quizzing, would you be okay if CMA quizzing merged under Nazarene, which is a much bigger, much stronger program than CMA? Would you be okay if CMA merged under Nazarene and Nazarene said, okay, welcome, you can participate, but you don't have a voice in any sort of leadership uh, decision making? Uh, you probably wouldn't be terribly happy about that, right? I don't think we can expect similarly folks who are not part of our quizzing to join our quizzing unless they have an equal voice at the table, right? I think that's critically important. And as a result of this, then, I think the third age needs to necessarily be non-denominational. It needs to be incorporated with articles, 
and it needs to have bylaws to protect all voices. And in, in on top of that, I know we're getting kind of nerdy here, or I'm getting kind of nerdy here with bylaws, but we need bylaws to protect quizzing from self-interested saboteurs. Um, there have been examples in the past in our quizzing program, uh, and I don't mean P&W, uh, but I, I mean you know, internationally in our quizzing program, where there have been examples of self-interested saboteurs. I don't think they were intentionally desiring to be saboteurs, but they became saboteurs because of their self-interest related to quizzing. And we need to be able to protect quizzing from that. And that's where bylaws come in, into play, ensuring that all voices are protected, they're able to speak, they're able to be heard, and we can protect the program against unintentional sabotage uh, going forward. Any thoughts on that one? Um, this this might be a really dumb um, example. It, it, it is rules-based, but I remember there was a time where um, one quiz master in PNW just decided that um, they could ask, I think it was other verses than, were, than what were designated, designated as finished thises as finished thises because there was nothing that said that they couldn't. Even right. though everyone expected only the ones designated as finished this is to be finished this is. And so in this this scenario, we just codified the rule, which isn't is not a bylaw because it's not organizationally based, right? But anyway, we decided that like we don't want that ability to exist for somebody to do. We want to protect the the competition such that people know what to expect with regards to this one specific rule. Um and would you say that bylaws are kind of a similar codification of we want to be able to have either recourse or protect against people acting on their own um, in a way that isn't in the best interest of everybody. Yeah, to a degree. Think of bylaws as a combination of two things. The 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 normative behavior of the organization in terms of like, you know, we need to have an annual meeting, let's say, right? Or or something, right? Like normative behavior of how we go about doing certain things. And then Another thing that is almost like the organizational version of protesting in a quiz meet, right? A, a mechanism by which if you feel your voice is not being heard or if you are being sidelined or if there's a violation of some sort of normative operation, you have some ability to, you know, air your grievances and, and, and seek some sort of resolution behind it, right? And mostly this is around the idea of, of limiting and ideally eliminating tyranny, um, which I know you're thinking like quizzing. Why would anybody want to be tyrannical and, you know, when it comes to quizzing? But it happens. Um, so like if you've got a, a, you know, a quizzing tyrant sort of taking quizzing off in a weird direction, you want to be able to have a, you know, majority, supermajority, whatever it is, you want to have some sort of mechanism defined in the bylaws to be able to say like, okay, wait a minute, a minority, and of course, a minor, an ultimate minority is one person, right? But but whether that is one person or just a small group of people is taking quizzing off into left field, and we want the majority to be able to wrangle that back to like like to to protect um uh to protect quizzing that's what bylaws are for so in pnw as an example like i'm the district coordinator in pnw but a simple majority of the churches in pnw can overrule anything that i 
stipulate, right? If I come up with any sort of policy, practice, rules change, whatever, now I'm actually not authorized to come up with rules change, but even if, even if I did, right, let's say I unilaterally decided something, our bylaws say a simple majority of the churches can simply veto that and say, nope, <laughs> we, we, Griffin, we appreciate what you're doing, but, or maybe we don't, but we're not okay with whatever that thing is, right? And they, and there's a mechanism by which they can uh, can overrule me, right? Uh, having that mechanism there is useful because it, it reduces the possibility of conflict in the future. Some people think having this stuff codified in bylaws increases conflict. It actually reduces conflict because there are mechanisms by which we can actually resolve these, con these potential conflicts be before a lot of, um, sort of frustration, animosity, or whatever gets baked into the pie of, of the particular conflict. Now, is there, this might be very, a very draconian question, but let's say you are going off into left field and PNW and a simple majority of the churches vote to overturn something that you did. Right. If, I mean, what is there to prevent just like some battle of wills where you're like, I don't care what the simple majority voted for and what the bylaws say, it's going to happen anyway. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and ultimately that's the thing. Like if I, if I ignore the will of the coaches, there has to be something in the bylaws by which they can actually force a change. Right. And so our bylaws basically say the district coordinator is uh, nominated and ratified on an annual basis. So maybe I can, you know, destroy quizzing for half a season, but ultimately uh, a majority of the coaches can say, yeah, Griffin, you're no longer the district coordinator. Like, like, <laughs> like it's time to take a break. Right. Um, and the very fact that they have that power and it's defined and codified and protected in our bylaws means that the district coordinator is much less likely to just be like, let's go over here now, right? Because there does need to be collaboration and bringing along the districts to any, or sorry, districts, bringing along the, the churches in any sort of directional change. Right. And like, I'm fully on board. I just am getting very cynical because I'm watching a probably wildly inaccurate legal drama where bylaws are brought up almost every episode. And it just seems like every other episode, somebody forms um, a, ma a majority group and changes the bylaws <laughs> to whatever they want it to be. And it, it, it seems very uh, counterproductive in the long run. Well, that's it. So that's interesting. So their bylaws are allowed to be changed by a simple majority. Or maybe it was, um, you know, a 80% or, but it, it was something that probably is unlikely to actually happen, right? Where hmm. eight, you know, a, what's, is it called a super majority? Um, yeah. It's usually like uh, two thirds. Yeah. Right. It's probably unrealistic for two thirds of a law firm to um, continually vote to to like add bylaws um, in in contradiction to the other third, where the two thirds is kind of a different group of two thirds. You know, every two episodes of the show. Um, but yeah, I mean that obviously exists. But um, the idea is to have safeguards in place such that a majority of the participants are getting what they want. Right. Um, is yeah. this Boston legal? What is this? No, this is suits suits. Okay. I haven't seen it, but um, <laughs> I haven't seen Boston. I haven't seen Boston legal either, but, um, but yeah, it's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I'm curious about such things. <laughs> so one thing, speaking of bylaws, one thing's uh, one thing, one of the things I think third age needs to have in its bylaws uh, is, is, I mean, it's kind of bizarre that it's not, 
in other organizations already is a requirement for 100% transparency by default uh, enforced in the bylaws. So the, the idea being that uh, any anything that happens in a meeting is minuted and recorded and is 100% transparent. Um, so like if you really, really want to listen in on a three hour, you know, leadership meeting, the audio transcript, uh, you have access to it, you know, these, these sorts of things. Um, it's, uh, I, it's, it's difficult for me to imagine a scenario where a hundred, hundred percent transparency is bad. I think there are occasionally very rare exceptions. Like when you're talking about disciplinary actions, uh, I think sometimes you may want to have, uh, maybe not a hundred percent transparency, but even then I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, but in terms of general operation, yeah, like votes and discussions and debates, like hundred percent transparency all the time by default. I just, I, it's hard for me to imagine why that's a bad idea. And then related to that, uh, I think it's important to have autonomy wherever it's possible to have autonomy. So at the quizzer level, church level, region, district, national, international, global, whatever level you want to talk about. So there, there used to be this, um, a controversy that, that happened is somewhat recent. And by that, I mean, it happened in the last 10 years. It may have happened in the last five years, but there was a quizzer that was near the border of two different districts. And was technically in one of those two districts, but wanted to quiz with the other district. And there was great wailing and gnashing of teeth, and there was a controversy over it. And I'm, I just, I don't, I don't see the point. Um, let quizzers have autonomy. Let churches have autonomy. If a quizzer decides they don't want to quiz with you in your district and quiz with a different district, well, maybe you should take that as a signal that you should try to make your district more awesome. Um, not, complain about the fact that the district that the, the quizzer isn't being forced to quiz with you against their will that just seems bizarre to me so anyway th any thoughts on those two things um i think one might start thinking like well one of the probably the biggest um driver of the competitive level of a district is pure size and so it it might be that districts that just happen to be in larger metropolitan areas are going to be more competitive and will um, basically attract anyone in a bordering district that is less competitive, right? Um, but another thing to think about in a potential new age of quizzing is there's no reason that there have to be these strict district lines. Um, they're kind of just used because it makes things simpler in some senses, um, but there's no reason that the, that the Pacific Northwest District, as defined by the CMA districts, needs to be the the bordered definition of a Pacific Northwest quizzing district, or that there even needs to be a bordered definition of a Pacific Northwest quizzing district. Yeah. And case in point, if there was somebody, you know, if there was a team that was in, let's say, Northern California that wanted to join PNW quizzing, we would absolutely let them in. And no one anywhere would have any complaint at any level, like, you know, inside PNW, at the international level, Canada, no district would care, right? They'd be like, yes, join PNW quizzing, participate, right? The only thing that, that stops that from happening is just the sheer geographical distance, um, you know, and the logistics around being able to participate. But if you can surmount, surmount, if you can overcome the logistical hurdle, the, there's there's just there's no point to it. They just say like organize in whatever way makes the most sense. Um, and you know if you've got zones in your district and one zone wants to move off and 
be with a different district or create their own district. I mean, again, it's just who cares? The idea is let's try to find ways to encourage growth at every possible level and advance the mission. So then speaking of advancing uh, the mission, I think we need to make starting a quiz program anywhere in the U.S. and Canada as trivially easy as possible and hyper cheap. And there's a couple of ways around that. So trivially easy means like if you can recruit, if uh, well, actually all up and down the line, right? We need to provide, we need to be able to provide materials, motivational videos, whatever it happens to be such that it makes the effort of recruiting people into a quizzing program easier uh, and as easy as possible. We also need to try to make it as hyper cheap, if not completely free, ideally, to start up a quiz program. So we've talked about this a little bit before, um, making equipment as cheap as possible. So doing away with benches, doing away with pads and saying, and I know this is this is quizzing blasphemy here, but uh, going to push button quizzing because we can do that substantially cheaper and to such a degree that uh, existing districts may want to consider paying a very small amount of money uh, every year into a pool that pays for free equipment for new districts. The idea being that, you know, if there's a district from Nevada that just wants to start up and they're like, yeah, uh, we could create or we could buy our own equipment for, you know, $40 or you can just give us, you know, some free equipment. And and we'd be like, yeah, $40 is not a particularly large barrier to entry. Nevertheless, we want to make that in barrier to entry even lower, ideally zero. And so sign up with quizzing and as a, as a new district, and we will send you your first three or four, you know, quiz sets uh, or whatever it happens to be. You know, it's not a ton of money in the grander scheme of things. And uh, we could, um, I mean, it's less money, it's significantly less money than one quizzer from B&W spends to go to internationals. Uh, certainly, we can expend that sort of budget on an annual basis to get new districts up and started with, you know, free equipment. I think that's that's critically important. Um, I know, some, uh, you know, Zach has been making great strides uh, with his push button uh, uh, DIY uh, project. And that's fantastic. Um, I'd love to see that progress toward full maturity and, and, and getting out to as many folks as possible. Um, but that's, that's one way that we can advance, uh, quizzing. Another one it, kind of related to this is marketing and evangelism and actually have like real serious marketing and evangelism plans rather than sort of like one-off effects. Now I'm not dissing one-off effects because one-off effects are better than nothing, right? So a couple of years ago at internationals, we had, um, uh, Zach hired a videographer who put together a promotional video after the fact based on video that he took at the meet. And that was great. It's a one-off, but it's great. And it's, and it's certainly better than having nothing. Um, there's another one that I, there's another example I was just thinking of, but now it's lost in my head. Oh, Josiah, um, uh, uh is, um, not the Josiah who, emailed us different Josiah. He's um, particularly good at um, evangelizing quizzing and getting um, a new program started up, which is fantastic. That's, you know, it's a, it's a gifting obviously um, for him. And so obviously I want to encourage that, but he is a one-off and I think we need to systematize these sorts of things. Um, 
with a, a true marketing and evangelism plan, target parents primarily, but also youth and pastors, um, have training videos, uh, more and more training videos, have scripted demos, guides, handbooks, more and more and more. Make it just abundantly easy to be able to access these things, to be able to leverage them, uh, and to be able to go from zero to operational as quickly and easily as possible. The other thing we need to do, and this is going to sound really bizarre, but I'd, I'd like to see quizzing yearn to be more mainstream which means maybe we even consider the idea of paid direct advertising. Imagine online ads, radio, TV that say, here's quizzing. Here's, you know, if you want to get, you know, want to participate, here's how, here's the benefits. Um, here's the value proposition. Uh, here's, here's the call to action. Um, invitations to, you know, broadcasted invitations to the community to go hang out at a quiz meet and to see what quizzing is about and maybe even consider participating. And then if we want to go really crazy, uh, something that, you know, Scott and I have talked about in the past, um, on the pod here, but is I, I call it the ESPN eight idea is the idea of having quizzing be broadcast on some sort of you know, TV station. Now, maybe we can only do it on radio. Maybe we can do it via, you know, Twitch or some other sort of, you know, streaming video uh, platform. Um, ideally, I'd like it to be a little bit more mainstream than that. But the idea that we have quizzing start to invade the mainstream thought space. Uh, and that's really where I'd like to see the third age of quizzing go. I have nothing to add. And the state of my stomach is motivating me to not find anything to add. <laughs> Scott is hungry. All right. And with on that bombshell of an empty stomach, I uh, want to encourage everybody, if you have any thoughts, uh, concerns, questions, comments, nagging doubts, paranoia, please email Scott and I at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at in, uh, Inside Quizzing, and you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Bible Quizzing Slack channel, Inside Quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thanks, Griffin, and thanks to all of our listeners. 